This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon.com and by University of California Press, which publishes loads of titles of interest to Dig listeners like you. One that you might find interesting is Race in America's Long War by Nikhil Paul Singh. Donald Trump's election produced shock and disbelief for liberals, progressive, and leftists globally. Yet most of the immediate analysis neglects longer-term accounting of how the United States arrived here. Race in America's Long War examines the relationship between war, politics, police power, and the changing contours of race and racism in the contemporary United States. Singh argues that the United States' pursuit of war since the September 11th terrorist attacks has reanimated a longer history of imperial statecraft that segregated and eliminated enemies both within and overseas. America's territorial expansion and Indian removals, settler in-migration and nativist restriction, and African slavery and its afterlives were formative social and political processes that drove the rise of the United States as a capitalist world power long before the onset of globalization. Spanning the course of U.S. history, these crucial essays show how the return of racism and war as seemingly permanent features of American public and political life is at the heart of our present crisis and collective disorientation. Race in America's Long War by Nikhil Pal Singh, out now from University of California Press. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This is a second week in a row where The Diglet has two separate guests. A lot is happening. I had two interviews scheduled, and I pulled listeners, and listeners overwhelmingly told me to post the two interviews separately if they were on two different topics. So here we go. The massacre in Las Vegas has once again put the long-simmering debate over gun control back on boil. The shooter had 23 firearms in his hotel room, including, according to the Washington Post, at least a dozen semi-automatic rifles legally modified to fire like automatic weapons. The debate follows a well-worn and familiar path. Liberals cry out for more gun control, and members of the NRA-tethered Republican Party decry the politicization of tragedy, as if the question of how someone gets their hands on a dozen essentially automatic rifles isn't inherently a political one. But what this debate obscures is that we already have a form of gun control in the United States. The problem is that it's a form of gun control that does little to nothing to keep us safe, and that mostly results in locking up huge numbers of poor black men. This, to be clear, is not an argument against gun control. I'm not a fan at all of either the case made by the NRA on the right or the case made by some on the radical left that says we need firearms to resist the government. Rather, my point is that we currently have a two-tiered right to bear arms in this country, 
that has led the right to bear any and every arm being sacrosanct for white Americans while being relentlessly criminalized for many black Americans. I firmly believe that we must disarm all of American society, including, ultimately, the police. What the current setup does is it permits the mass production and distribution of guns into a segregated two-tier system of gun rights. The result is that we have horrible shootings, whether on the south side of Chicago or from the broken window of a Las Vegas hotel, alongside mass incarceration of black men for carrying guns, the mere possession of guns. In short, our gun control status quo is the worst setup imaginable. Reporters, unfortunately, almost never talk about this, and I find it incredibly frustrating, as you can probably tell. For many journalists, it's always a question of there being just two positions, on guns or really on anything, one a liberal position and the other a conservative position. As a result, a real left position is often rendered invisible. That's why so many political reporters, for example, had such a hard time making sense of Bernie Sanders initially. When it comes to guns, I think the left should say this. We want a society without readily available weapons of war on the streets and a society without mass incarceration. It seems reasonable enough to me. Not that it'll be easy to make this happen, either of them, but it seems like a reasonable enough vision and statement of principles to me. Anyhow, my guest for this episode is Ben Levin, a professor of law at the University of Colorado Law School, who teaches and writes about criminal law and procedure. Before entering academia, he practiced civil rights law, focusing on police and prosecutorial misconduct, and served as a law clerk to two federal judges. More to the point, his 2016 article, Guns and Drugs, in the Fordham Law Review, really helped shape my thinking on guns and mass incarceration. Ben Levin, welcome to The Dig. Thanks, Ben. Pleasure to be here. I'm really glad to have you on to talk about gun control because it was your law review article that really helped me think through the relationship between gun control and mass incarceration. And I'm hoping that we can thread a needle here to mix metaphors, also puncture some unfortunate unfortunate arguments that characterize the current debate. So let's start with this. We do have forms of gun control in this country, contrary to popular belief, but they're forms of gun control that mostly result in sending poor black men to prison in large numbers. Explain how that is. Sure. So um, it's a dynamic that plays out in the realm of of gun control, but it's a dynamic that plays out, unfortunately, pretty broadly um, in our legal system, which is that often uh, in in a world of partisan gridlock or in a world where where different sides may have really different views, um, there often will be some kind of common ground. Um, And unfortunately, what we've seen in 
uh, in the second half of the 20th century and and uh, and in the, the dawn of the 21st century is that that common ground is is all too often criminal law. So um, a number of legal scholars have kind of waded into this area, have sort of theorized why that is um, in terms of kind of what what sorts of risks politicians can take? Um, you know, a lot of a lot of writing and a lot of thought has gone into what happened, say, to the Democratic Party uh, in the wake of of the of the Dukakis campaign and the and the Willie Horton ad and this idea that then with the Clinton administration there was kind of a Democratic turn to to tough on crime. So what we've seen is a number of areas where I think there is compromise, and that compromise looks like criminal. Uh, you know, taking the taking the gun example specifically, um, what we've seen is this really interesting space where, um, say, folks on the left, but but gun control advocates generally um, are really concerned with, broadly speaking, getting guns off the street. Right? They don't want they don't want there to be as many guns that are there. They're concerned about gun violence, um, and, and they're generally not enthusiastic about the idea that um, that people have guns. Um, uh, for real gun rights advocates, for the NRA, for organizations like that, um, it's actually very helpful for them to to make it clear that they really care about what they call law-abiding gun owners rather than um, kind of lawless gun owners. But it's not it's not good um, it's not good for business. Um, I mean, I guess there, there are debates about this, but um, but it's you know it sends a bad message to the public when when there's kind of when there's a great deal of of gun violence and um, and for the NRA in particular, in a number of situations, the NRA has actually come out and backed um, really harsh criminal regulatory mechanisms. Um, so what you have is this, this strange point of compromise where the NRA, and again, a range of gun rights groups, um, particularly um, sort of Republican politicians who, who might have closer ties with the NRA, um, are very, very critical and will fight very hard against regulatory mechanisms aimed at manufacturers, aimed at sellers, um, aimed at, at kind of larger interests, um, or that appear to be aimed at, again, kind of this, this idea of the law-abiding gun owner, the person who might be an NRA member who might own a large number of guns. Um, but they really have no particular stake uh, in protecting, let's say, the person who actually doesn't own a gun lawfully, maybe the person who has a criminal record um, and, and is in possession of a gun, right? So that person doesn't fall within the protection of those interest groups, um, you know, kind of, again, generally speaking, on the right. Um, and then from the left, to the extent they're folks who really are uh, sort of absolutists in the sense that they, they just don't want guns out there, um, and again, even folks who are less absolutist, um, it's it's a pretty easy sell to say, here is this person who who as a society we have identified as risky. Why should that person have a gun? Um, end result is compromise on criminal law. So before we delve any deeper, if you could just lay out what the particular statutes are that end up criminalizing gun possession in a way that fuels mass incarceration, and what the result of those statutes being policed and prosecuted are. There are a range of these statutes, both um, both state and federal, and actually some at the at the municipal level. Um, so there are a bunch of different kinds of of uh, regulatory statutes involving guns. Um, the one that that I wrote about in the article that you mentioned, generally speaking, um, are 
are statutes that regulate possession rather than use, right? So there, there are definitely plenty of statutes on the books that say, um, you know, you, you can't you can't fire a gun, um, you know, across the street, or you can't fire a gun at another person, or things like that. Um, but what I was particularly interested in, and remain particularly interested in, are these statutes that deal um, with possession, because it's often something that comes up again. You know, it's coming up now. Um, it comes up, you know, in what's Unfortunately, all too often, the wake of um, the wake of, of you know serious instances of gun violence. Um, so these statutes will, in some way, regulate who can possess a gun, what type of gun they can possess, or where they can possess a gun. Um, so, uh, so there are a number of these statutes that that I've written critically about, and some other folks have that you know, courts have have been ambivalent about. Um, that are often referred to as um, as felon in possession or uh, as felon in possession statutes or maybe criminal in possession statutes. Um, and the idea is that you'll have a statute um, that forbids uh, someone with a criminal record. Um, and, and I want to just kind of put an asterisk there for a second, but someone with a criminal record um, from possessing a gun. So if that person at some point either purchases a gun unlawfully, um, winds up, you know, borrowing a gun from someone or had owned a gun before and didn't turn it over, um, and she has, um, it turns out, uh, a criminal record, um, she'll then be in violation of the criminal code, um, which means that, you know, maybe, maybe if she's, if there's, if she's stopped and her car is searched by a police officer, it turns out there's a gun, um, for some reason, launch comes across law enforcement's radar, um, she's going to be uh, facing usually very, very um, harsh punishments, um, often mandatory minimum penalties, which is, again, another reason why I think a lot of these, um, these gun statutes um, should be concerning is that um, they raise the same specter that we see so heavily criticized in the context of the war on drugs um, of very harsh penalties, of mandatory minimum penalties that don't um, don't allow for kind of uh, for discretion or, or downward um, departure. So um, I just say kind of I, I mentioned that sort of asterisk in terms of the criminal record piece. Um, what is really interesting about these statutes is you know there, there often isn't actually um, any uh, any specification as to sort of what the criminal record could be for. Right. So someone could have been committed. Uh, pardon me. Could have been convicted of a, a range of different crimes very long ago. Whatever the case may be. Um, that criminal record still will uh, will render them unable to possess a gun lawfully, um, and they'll be treated harshly as a result. Um, so that's you know one kind of general class. Um, there also are restrictions um, on where someone can possess a gun. Um, so think of kind of the paradigmatic example as the you know the um, the jurisdictions in which there might be some regulation on having a gun um, on school grounds or near a school. Um, so, so statutes like this, again, you know, kind of raise a, a different set of questions, have different dynamics, um, and play out differently in different places. Um, so there are some jurisdictions actually where, um, and this is true in terms of drugs as well as guns, where because of how, um, for example, a city is planned or designed, um, or has just come to be, um, it may be that very little of the city will actually not be a school zone. Um, so that if it turns out that uh, the police officer stops someone, um, you know, on a street in most places, they will actually be um, be susceptible to that punishment. Um, so that would be kind of a, let's say, like a location of possession. Um, and then the third general kind of class of gun laws that we have um, regulates the type of weapon. Um, now, kind of as between those first two, I think the primary maybe is a little more concerning. Um, the the third class is 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 as to weapon type. So that would be kind of um, the idea that you know you, it's it's unlawful to possess 
um, to possess a firearm that contains um, there that can that, that has a that will accommodate, for example, a clip that has more than um, that has more than nine shells or something along those lines. Um, I think again, one of is that intuitively to many folks might make sense because a practical matter raises some really interesting questions because often um, what actually is defined as, for example, a high capacity firearm is a pretty common consumer item that the um, the 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 threshold is actually um, you know lower statutorily than it is um, in the consumer world. The the case that you make in your article from last year, guns and drugs, and that you started to lay out there is that a lot of the same problems that critics point out about the war on drugs map pretty well on to the war on guns, but the debate is very different. In fact, the way the entire debate is structured as just kind of NRA libertarian right versus liberal pro-gun control really seems to obscure how the policing and prosecution of guns has created this sort of two-tiered right to bear arms in this country and as a result become really one of the key components among many of of the carceral state. Yeah, so I think one thing that's 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 interesting and that that actually concerns me is I think in some ways there's a there's a dangerous preoccupation with the second amendment in these conversations, right? So it makes sense that maybe from a, a um, a gun rights perspective or, or an anti-gun control perspective, the Second Amendment and the language of the Second Amendment um, are very important and very helpful. And certainly given um, what the Supreme Court did in Heller um, and in McDonald, the two big cases where um, where the court defined the Second Amendment um, as as guaranteeing an individual right to bear arms, um, th- those are you know that that becomes very important to to folks who who care deeply about um, about uh, their right to um, to have guns. I think from from a gun control perspective, and for um, for liberals, for folks on the left, for folks on the right who may um, who may be kind of more skeptical to, to some of those positions. I think one of the problems is that um, the concern or the frame is in terms of of simply a right to bear arms or a lack of such a right to bear arms, right? So it's all about the Second Amendment. And so for folks who, who either don't want guns, who don't think other people should have guns, it's not that difficult to make an argument that says some, that something like the Second Amendment should mean something else or maybe we should pass a constitutional amendment or we should come up with statutes that in some way um, won't fall afoul of the Second Amendment, um, but will will prevent people from owning guns. Um, what I worry about, so it's, it's, a, you know, it's a point that I make in the article, and I, I think it's something that, um, you know, in talking to, um, to many folks involved in, um, in criminal practice, it's, it's something you see, is that there are a range of other rights, of other liberties, of other interests that are implicated by these statutes. Um, right. So I think the you know maybe the best example is to think about the stop and frisk policy um, uh, in New York City, where um, where the NYPD was um, was effectively stopping um, and frisking large numbers, um, usually of young black men, although kind of a range of a range of people, but but predominantly young black men. Um, and the idea was there had been issues with gun violence, and there was a concern about getting guns off the street. So again, framed simply in terms of you know pro-gun, anti-gun, this is this is a measure designed to to root out guns, um, but it implicates so many other interests, right? For um, for for generations, um, or at least a couple of generations. Um, 
of of people in New York. This meant that you know, kind of being being a, a person of color in New York, being someone of a certain race or age or looking a certain way, meant that you were going to be subjected um, to kind of constant surveillance or, or police intrusion. Right? And this and came so in for a, this came in for a huge amount of criticism um, from the center left onward left. Yet. I think people didn't really process that mass stop and frisk by the NYPD was premised on searching for guns, um, even though it turned up a lot more small amounts of marijuana. The the premise and justification was always searching for guns. Yet even with all the criticism of the, the program that ultimately resulted in a federal judge ruling that it was unconstitutional, even then peop- it, the, the mainstream critics of stop and frisk didn't really seem to grasp how – Bloomberg, in particular,'s anti-gun gun control agenda was was expressed most most of all through stop and frisk. Right. No, I think that it's a, you know it's a really important point that I think that the, the aspect gets forgotten. And you know, I think kind of in popular discourse, it, it was framed in terms of the war on drugs. It was sort of folded into that conversation. Um, and you know, I think one of the one of the really important lessons from a lot of this, I think, not just about guns, but about the way kind of as a society. Um, we we use the criminal justice system, or, or that kind of the the, the, um, the government uses criminal law, um, is to think about these these situations where um, where criticism becomes very common, right? And take the war on drugs, um, take stop and frisk, um, and I think a danger is to frame it in the in sort of the um, least offensive terms, right? It's to say, you know, the war on drugs is a problem um, because marijuana is not really that bad, so we should decriminalize marijuana. Now, regardless of your feelings on marijuana or whether it should be decriminalized... Um, this show is decidedly sort of pro, pro-marijuana, just as a caveat. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> okay, so... so so we're in marijuana-friendly territory here, but um, but right, like it's you know, it's a it's sort of an ahistorical claim to make the war on drugs simply about marijuana mm-hmm. and a and a critique of the war on drugs that isn't able to reckon with um with crack with I mean with heroin and again this is I think a huge issue as we now talk about the the regulation and the criminal regulation of opioids yes. right is the an opiate um is is the idea that the minute we start talking about something that people actually do perceive as scary, as risky, as dangerous, a lot of these critiques start to evaporate. Um, and that's a problem if those critiques are really serious, right? If we really are concerned about the number of people being put onto prison, if we're really concerned about intrusive policing, if we're really concerned about um, about racial racial disparities, um, those need to be concerns when we talk about, about scary stuff as well, not just once we, not just when we sort of defanged, um, the social problem, right? Not just when we're talking about low, you know, kind of, um, small possession, small amount possession of marijuana. Yeah. There's this, uh, I, I, I think one thing you're hitting on by pointing out the reluctance to apply the straightforward critique of the war on drugs to the war on guns, um, there are all these other problems that, or or kind of liberal hesitancies that sort of echoes. It's the failure to apply the critique of the war on marijuana to the broader war on drugs, which really must entail an evaluation and criticism of the entire prohibitionist regime from the get-go. And if we're going to deal with mass incarceration, um, we have to move past this idea that prisons are just full of people who were unlucky enough or um, 
to get locked up for possessing small amounts of marijuana. I mean, frankly, that's just not who's in prison and why we have mass incarceration. We have to think of these broader regimes that uh, criminalize so many, such broad swaths of American life and that impose such severe sentences. Right. And, you know, I, I think it's such an important point. And I know, um, I guess, James Foreman, who I believe has been has been a guest on on your show, you know, has written this really powerful, has written this really powerful book, um, Locking Up Our Own. And one of the one of kind of his critical interventions is he looks at um, at what happened um, in, in Washington, D.C. in a majority um, in a majority black city that actually had kind of um, it wasn't just a story of sort of some. Uh, of kind of the uh, a more conservative white tough on crime population um, imposing its will, um, it was really the reality of of, of people trying to grapple um, with you know and again in that context with heroin addiction with um, with crime with a lot of things that um, that that are more difficult and so I think you know to me it's one of the it was one of the things that I was really drawn to um, this, this question of, of guns in terms of um, is the fact that if we're really serious about those critiques and if we want to do something about the system, um, it does us no good to pretend that um, that those problems aren't out there. Um, which is why I think it is important to have these conversations, you know, in the wake um, in the wake of the shootings uh, in Las Vegas, in the you know, in the wake of these these um, these really horrible events that. Um, you know, there's always the conversation about, you know, can they be politicized or not politicized? And, you know, of course, this is when we, we should have these conversations. I think the, the real, the really important point, though, and the real, the thing that we, we need to grapple with in all of this is sort of what are, what are the trade-offs? And it's not just a question of doing something or doing nothing. It's, you know, what is that something? Um, and it's something that, you know, Foreman and others have recounted, look back, um, kind of at a number of, of crime spikes um, at a number of moments where there was a lot of attention paid to um, to drug addiction and other things is that uh, you know too often that do something response was um, was carceral. Yeah, something that Foreman recounts in his book is that Eric Holder, who ultimately um, was sort of hailed in some ways, not in all, as a civil rights hero as Attorney General. Um, was also, I believe, in the earlier mid-1990s, the first black U.S. attorney for D.C., where he distinguished himself um, by going after illegal gun possessions, just gun possession relentlessly. Right. And again, you know, kind of the 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 it's really easy to paint all of this in terms of kind of like there's there's a good response and there's a bad response and there's you know this is people are overreacting or or not reacting enough i, I think you know the really important thing is is trying to develop a language and and again a lot of really exciting and i think important work has been coming out in, in um in the past few years although you know folks have been working on these issues for for of course a long time but trying to ask you know how do we um how do we deal with um with whether it's actually what we would call violent crime or simply, and again, you know, I, I personally don't think that possessory gun crimes are violent, um, although there is actually um, sort of a decent amount of, of both judicial and, and scholarly debate about that point. Um, but, you know, a range of different crimes um, or, or a range of conduct, let's call it, that um, 
And that just makes people more uncomfortable because um, it, it, it does seem like there's harm. Um, and, and I will point to, because I think it's really it's really significant to this, um, that there's long been an argument um, that's been popular among um, kind of real real supporters of the drug war um, that that drug crime is in and, in and of itself violent, particularly drug dealing or drug trafficking, right? Um, and you know, uh, uh, Jeff Sessions has has uh, has kind of endorsed this this position on a number of occasions. We have um, a number of kind of prosecutorial organizations, and, and again, you know, certainly not drug all dealing, but kind of like drug drug overdose homicide charges are making a comeback right now. Right, right, absolutely. Which again, you know, kind of throws into stark relief the claims that what we're seeing is, is kind of a medical, um, a medical approach to um, to opioids. But um, again, I think really important that that what we're seeing is sort of some um, some some sense that if there is harm caused by conduct, um, if people suffer as a result of it, um, we should view that as violent. And then, kind of by extension, if something is violent, it's not. Um, it doesn't get the kind of critical treatment um, that that we say have reserved for um, for and again I'd say the war on drugs, but not really true for war on drugs um, that that people now feel feel less threatened by. Before we move on, I wanted to rewind a little to where we were talking about stop and frisk and the kind of sure. unacknowledged justification for that, or not unacknowledged, but not like easily forgotten justification for that being the search for illegal guns, um, which was also accompanied, people forget, by Bloomberg, whose specific, successful push, I believe, for a New York state law with a really severe um, and inflexible mandatory minimum for legal gun possession. Anyhow, that the history of this goes way deeper um, to Terry v. Ohio, the 1960-what Supreme Court decision? Um, I don't recall exactly, but the Supreme Court decision that basically said it's okay for police to conduct street stop and frisks with the much lower standard below probable cause of reasonable suspicion. So this kind of very basic police practice of, of stop and frisk that allows police to detain you and touch you is is premised on the search for guns as well. Is that right? Right, that's correct. So, so Terry, which is um, it's 1968. Um, I wish that I knew that actually off the top of my head, um, but um, but but I'm quick with my my typing fingers. Um, <laughs> so, um, uh, but so, no, so so Terry, which um, which which leads to the the Terry stop, um, as it's known, right, which is the idea that officers can do a kind of a, a pat down, and the justification is is at least as offered by the court something about officer safety, um, right? That there's some idea um, that an officer, if not that that the, the police officer is supposed to be, you know, searching for contraband or looking for evidence of a crime, but it's um, that the officer should be able to, to look and see if someone's armed. Um, but but I think it is worth noting that that is the justification, right? Like that the 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 question is actually about identifying um, whether someone has a gun, um, which means that it is kind of baked into a significant amount of um, criminal procedure in the U.S. Of policing in the U.S. Um, of a lot of how things are done. Um, 
the, the ubiquity of firearms in this country um, does lead to a lot of kind of strange and conflicting case law, right? And this is something um, you mentioned earlier, kind of this this sort of two-tiered um, or, or double standard in terms of, of who actually has the right to bear arms. Um, but it is a really fascinating question and something that's um, that's being litigated and has been litigated um, is the question of, of what actually happens to, to policing and to police searches um, in a in a moment or in, in a legal in a legal regime in which the Supreme Court has actually um, recognized the the legal right to bear arms, right? Because we read about so many cases where um, and so many you know so many of the the kind of the the heavily publicized and, and really tragic. Um, um, police violence cases where um, where a shooting will be deemed justified because um, an officer thought, thought that someone um, was armed. Philando um, Castile. Or, or I, right, exactly, exactly. Or not even not even the shooting cases, but simply a case where maybe an officer will stop someone because of a suspicious bulge, right? Which is something that um, you know, if you if you read Fourth Amendment cases, there are there are many such cases. Um, it becomes a really interesting question. And again, you know, there's some folks writing about this. There are definitely some cases that have arisen um, that where there is now a live question, right? Can a, can a police officer actually continue to stop someone because they have a suspicious bulge? Um, because it, particularly in a, in a state that has concealed carry laws, um, you know, why is that bulge suspicious? That person might be carrying a gun um, and the legislature and, and the court has decided that that's okay. Um, but what it does raise the specter of, which which gets to your earlier point that I think should be kind of concerning, kind of, it should be concerning to us, um, is the question of, you know, what would what would then make it reasonable? Well, you know, does that person look like the type of person who maybe shouldn't be carrying a gun concealed? Um, and what does that mean? What are the assumptions that would be baked into that? Um, are there assumptions about race, about you know, who might be a, a lawful or unlawful Um gun possessor, um, which is, I think, you know, does become one of the, the real peculiarities of living in a country where guns are so ubiquitous, enjoy so much sort of legal protection, but at the same time, um, the the very presence of guns, as you say, you know, from Terry onward, um, is used to justify um, some incredibly intrusive policing and, and, and has led to, to many people serving very long periods of time in prison. It's this point um, where there's this really fast that you're that you're underlining there, where there's this really fascinating contradiction between two of the most toxic features of American society, which is the gun culture on the one hand and the impunity for and celebration of um, invasive police state tactics (laughs) on the other. And they just can't really they're ultimately sort of irreconcilable, it seems. There's this really wonderful essay that I do. I do just want to flag. It's not, it's not a wonderful essay. I think it's a. It's a. It's something that that anyone should read who's interested in these questions. Um, there's this essay from 1994, and I think either the New York Times or the New York Times Magazine um, by James Q. Wilson, who's you know the kind of father of broken windows policing, is really really big proponent of of aggressive police tactics. Um, and he has this piece, and it's called "Just Take Away Their Guns." I mean, he may claim that um, if we're really serious as a society about um, about stopping gun violence, there's only one way to really effectively 
do that and really effectively regulate guns. And that's the police do a whole bunch of really terrible things. Um, and he, I mean, and Wilson, given his views on policing, is kind of okay with the idea that you'll have police basically profiling um, and trying to figure out who might have guns illegally and just stopping them and taking them, right? This is, I mean, it's the stop and frisk program. Um, but I think the point that's so important that Wilson makes, he says the two of these things are, are based, um, they go hand in hand, right? If we really, if we really do want to imagine a society in which the police can come and take away people's guns, that means we have a society where there is a specific vision of policing. Um, and I think what does make these discussions and these conversations so hard um, is that I think for so many folks who don't have that vision of policing, who don't actually, you know, who when they hear about stop and frisk, they're appalled. Um, it's so difficult because. Um, when we get, and again, I think it's what makes possessory crime just generally as a concept so difficult is, you know, how do you enforce possession crime? Well, either you have sort of intrusive or invasive police searches to try to, to ferret out what's being possessed, um, or it sort of ceases to have the same purpose preventatively because what it stands as um, is an extra punishment tacked on at the end, right? It's, you know, if police can't, can't find the weapon in advance, all it means is, you know, there's an extra charge dropped on at the end. Once someone is arrested for committing some other crime, um, then, oh, by the way, it turned out that they also had an illegal gun, um, which again raises the question of, of what those laws are doing. You know, if we, if we believe in deterrence, if we think that people are going to be deterred from, um, from having, from having guns illegally because they think if they do something else bad um, or if police stop them, then they're going to be, uh, then they're going to be subject to, to, again, potentially lengthy prison sentence. Um, then maybe it, it, it is an appealing model or it's okay. Um, but I think it's important to remember that what we're talking about then um, still is, re is resting on kind of this deterrence ideal. Um, and from a preventative standpoint, it is still really tough, tough to know Again, unless we're dealing with um, policing, that's the sort that you describe, um, or that, as I say, kind of Wilson is more supportive of. Maybe Wilson, um, unlike many of his conservative colleagues, is not a sort of gun rights absolutist, but for many on the right, libertarians accepted, they, they simultaneously celebrate unfettered police power and also this sort of Second Amendment white armed white vigilanteism, you know, that has deep roots in American settler colonialism. And ultimately, they they both, I don't know, they, they, they simultaneously sort of bolster each other ideologically, but also are in, also have this deep contradiction of sort of like, these are the people who embrace American militarism and police power domestically and abroad so fervently, which which entails some notion of of the state having a monopoly on violence, but then simultaneously kind of white vigilante gun gun possession also being unfettered, which has kind of this militia vibe to it. It becomes more anti-statist when it becomes actually Bundy out in Oregon with his militia. But when it's not that explicit militia iteration, um, there's kind of this un, unresolved relationship between the two ideologically, it seems to me. Yeah, no, I mean, and I think kind of two points on that. I mean, one, I think this is actually what makes some of Radley Balko's work so fascinating, right? Who's taking kind of maybe more of a libertarian yeah. stance 
uh, on a range of issues, um, but has um, has come out as as incredibly critical of um, of kind of what he describes as the rise of the warrior cop, but of kind of militarized policing. Um, but who, who I think is sort of trying to make um, to make sense of some of these things, or or at least articulate a position. And again, I know you know there there are other folks doing this. Who who are you know maybe might take a more libertarian stand on a number of issues and um, and put policing in that frame. Um, but I think you know kind of to to your to your mention of um, of the Bundy situation, right? I think there's actually something really telling there as well. And I think this is a struggle for folks on the left. It's a struggle for folks on the right, um, which is to be to, to think about kind of the the comfort that any of us has. Um, with policing or the criminal justice system when it's dealing with, again, people, um, I won't just say people we disagree with, because that's not, that's, that's not accurate and that doesn't go far enough. I think it's when we're dealing with people who, who, who we think are, are dangerous. And who um, we think merit punishment. Yeah. That's when called, exactly, we, that's when exactly. carceral liberalism rears its, its head. Um, that's why right. we have, it's so hard to have discussions about, sex offenders being one of the fastest growing portions of the prison population and why it was so disturbing to see all of these liberals complaining that the FBI basically wasn't like massacring the Bundy occupiers, however repulsive their views might be and they might be personally. Right. And so I think, you know, I think it raises a few questions, again, kind of for all of us as we think about sort of our own our own personal reactions to these things. I mean, I I think, you know, one um, one is like all of this is about trade offs. And right. I mean, you know, it may be and it's true with the, you know, the gun possession statutes. Right. It's not at all implausible to me. And and I think it's, you know, that you could you could know the realities of stop and frisk. You could look at you could look at the somewhat limited data that we have of kind of um, of of who gets charged under different statutes, and we can see that you know it turns out that it seems like, for example, at least in certain jurisdictions, um, you know, uh, black defendants face um, face, for example, felon in possession um, sentence enhancements more often than their white counterparts. We can look at things like that, but that you might, um, as someone looking at these issues, still decide that the um, the benefits of such a law, that the potential for reducing gun violence outweighs those costs. And again, that's you know that's a personal decision that's that's that'd be rooted in in kind of your your own worldview and and again belief of, on on you know which dangers were greater than the other. Um, and I think that's true with all of these kinds of conversations. I think what worries me always is the sense that um, in some of these conversations, the the harm is treated as so bad or so scary or so indefensible that we don't ask those same questions, right? That we don't ask those questions of, you know, who's going to be arrested, who's going to be prosecuted, who's going to be put in prison? What does prison look like? What are these, again, what are what are the costs of that carceral turn? And again, it may be that knowing all of those costs, many folks would still, you know, wholeheartedly embrace the, the carceral turn. Um, but I, I think there should be, and there needs to be, um, you know, a reckoning, um, a reckoning with what those costs are, um, and, and just kind of one, one more, one more thing, kind of on the um, on the Bundy point. You know, this is there's there's writing about this, and um, it's, it's a point that folks have made. And I think it's it's an important one. Um, is in a lot of these situations where we witness um, kind of unequal treatment, it's a question of leveling up or leveling down. Um, so you know, I'll, I'll, I will flag um, uh, a friend and uh, a friend of mine and colleague of mine, um, Kate Levine, who's a, a professor at St. John's, has some really fascinating work um, on um, on what happens in the prosecution of police in force cases. 
Um, and, and her claim, which I think is a really fascinating and provocative one, is that a lot of folks criticize all of the procedural protections that police get when they're prosecuted. Um, but maybe the takeaway from that shouldn't be it's bad that police get all those procedural protections. Maybe the takeaway should be, you know, um, your average defendant should also get, you know, a grand jury or or, or have the same type a grand jury looking at evidence in the same way or have the same type of procedural protections. Again, agree or disagree, I think the, the, the point is, I think it's very tempting in some situations when we look around, we say, you know, there are so many um, people from marginalized communities, there's so many poor people, there's so many people of color, so many queer people who, who don't have the same um, benefits in a range of, of areas, and they get treated poorly by the system. And then we hear of the case where, you know, the, the affluent white defendant does something and, and um, gets a, a comparatively lighter sentence. Um, I think it's important to remember that that when we start hitting on the lightness of that sentence, um, it, again, it's a, it becomes a, a move that that sort of reifies or reinforces the notion that um, that that some kind of greater sentence is justified, rather than saying um, why is it that that these people are being treated differently? Um, why isn't it that that the um, you know that that the port of defendant of color doesn't get some of these these same benefits. I, I could not agree more. The idea that the demand should be for the carceral state to treat everyone just as shittily only only feeds its power and legitimates it in the criminal justice system as the solver of, of all problems in society. And there's nothing more dangerous than, than that very basic idea that governs American political culture. I want to talk about what maybe could be done because the debate feels so constrained where we have this very truncated debate, very truncated media coverage where there's a sort of carceral liberal position on the one hand and a conservative guns for everyone position on the other. Um, And this was really dramatically demonstrated last year when Democrats staged that sit-in demanding that people be on the uh, these enormous dragnet terrorism watch lists, which includes the no-fly list, which uh, are inc- you know have no basis in people actually having ties to terrorism and have no due process rights. You know, you have Democrats sitting in demanding that you know the hundreds of thousands of people on these lists be barred from having guns, and it's like totally surreal. But what? But I also don't want. I I, I hate that we have guns everywhere <laughs> in this country. And I don't think much of the NRA and I don't think also very much of the left wing arguments that, you know, we need to hoard guns to fight the state. Is there a different position that that both might disarm American society, but that doesn't feed mass incarceration? So so that, of course, is the um, is I said the million dollar question, but I think my I think my scale is off the huge question here. Um, and, and, you know, I think um, there definitely are regulatory options that I think would not feed the carceral state and I think um, might be steps in the direction that you're describing. Um, again, though, this is where I started out with kind of how we've gotten where we've gotten, um, is that they're politically very, very difficult. Um, they're very difficult uh, moves to make, right? So a shift to focusing um, on manufacture and sale, and I think primarily on manufacture, um, would it wouldn't disarm um, the population, and it certainly wouldn't do anything about the um, the 
I guess what the last estimate I've read is over 300 million um, guns um, in the country. <laughs> um, but what it would do is um, is reduce the 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 um, the continuous flow of guns. It potentially would reduce the the manufacture of of weapons that people think are particularly dangerous or, or things along those lines. Um, you know, again, the issue there becomes uh, becomes one of um, that, I mean, that is a place where I think the the interest group politics make it very hard. But um, but I do think there's a story where we said that kind of folks who were really concerned about uh, about gun control were were uh, were truly prioritizing that and weren't willing to make some of these um, these compromises on on criminal issues. Maybe that would help. Um, again, though, I know that the the political ground there is is deeply fraught. So I think that would be one thing. I mean, the actual what to do about the guns that are on the ground, though, is the is the really difficult piece of this. Because again, you know, unless we do want to endorse the James Wilson style, you know, just take away their guns, um, unless we are comfortable with the possessory offenses, um, there are a lot of guns that are just that are out there. Um, I mean, there have been buyback programs in in, in many jurisdictions that have kind of met with. Um, with varying degrees of success, um, I think kind of if you're someone who 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 wants to reduce the number of guns, that's certainly something to think about. Um, although again, I think we have we have at least some data and reason to think that um, a lot of um, a lot of folks who own guns will own many guns and are probably not people who are going to be interested in um, in the buyback programs, right? In <laughs> to, some ways, to put it mildly. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, to put it mildly. I mean, in some sense, I think, you know, the buyback programs are often geared more towards maybe the un- like an unlicensed handgun or something like that, a gun that, you know, at some point has wound up um, in someone's house that at some point they they maybe purchased unlawfully or maybe they purchased lawfully, but uh, but things have lapsed. Um, I mean, that would be, that'd be one option. But again, I think we're thinking about this kind of from a market perspective, it would be thinking about trying to reduce um reduce the actual um, new new guns um, coming into the market. So that would be part of it. Um, you know, it, we haven't talked at all about um, the um, the very controversial um, 2005 uh, law, the Protection um, of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act, which um, I guess came up uh, came up significantly in the in, um, in the last election in the Democratic primary, um, but right, which is the act that. Uh, um, that basically shields uh, gun manufacturers and gun sellers from um, from tort liability, from civil liability uh, in a range of contexts. Um, now, again, you know, people people feel very differently about that, not just along predictable kind of pro-gun, anti-gun um, terms. Um, there are a lot of different uh, um, sort of positions there. Um, it's true in the in the world of of legal scholars for folks who who study um, the tort system. Um, but you know, one other way of thinking about this would be kind of from a um, a tort or civil liability perspective. Um, to the extent Congress were were willing or able to um, either repeal or amend that statute, that you can't imagine a world in which um, maybe manufacturers or, or sellers would face um, would face liability in more contexts, which might again kind of add to the um, add to the reduction in new guns on the market, or in some way kind of um, regulate the market even more more strictly but um but really to be honest and i think this is what makes it so hard and it is one reason that people wind up with the criminal alternatives there's not a great way other than kind of changing culture and 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 sort of a range of those really really hard conversations to have that that go beyond guns um of actually doing something about the fact that there are just so many guns 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's such a critical point. The cat is out of the bag. The cat is heavily armed and totally has his brain fucked up by a toxic, violent gun culture that we live in. And I think there's something very um, tempting to um, many liberals to kind of look for these technocratic solutions when American American violence and, and gun culture are so deeply intertwined with so many other problems in this country going back to slavery and the maintenance of, of, of white supremacy thereafter, American militarism and mass incarceration, all of those things. And there's no silver bullet. Yeah. <laughs> right. No, and I, I think, you know, I think in fairness, it's one of it's one of the challenges. Again, you know, I'd mentioned before, I think one of the 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 problems with framing everything in terms of the Second Amendment is that we we then lose out on so many of these other important conversations that need to be had. Um, and I think one one issue in the in the gun conversations is is understanding um, how deeply entrenched um, guns are in different quarters of society for different reasons. Right? There's some really fascinating work done on kind of the social meaning of guns, and which is you know is different in different places and and for for different people. Um, and that trying to to figure out how to address gun violence. Um, again, it's something that so many people have been working on for so long um, and have been working so hard on um, that, that it is also the appeal of a one size fits all solution is not, I think, you know, it's just not something that will work, right? The, um, the way to, the way to address kind of the, the terrible problem of, of, of suicide by gun in this country is probably a different conversation um, than the conversation um, about how to reduce, um, for example, kind of, um, let's say, uh, homicides among, um, among, you know, young men of a certain age, right? Like these are, um, they may be related conversations and the, and there's the important common denominator, um, maybe not denominator, the important common link um, of guns. Um, but, but again, because of their ubiquity, because of their place in society, um, there's something that requires, I think, so many different interventions in so many different places, um, which, yeah, it, again, it makes... Um, unfortunately, in society, so often the closest we come to one-size-fits-all answers um, is criminal law. On that, I'm going to let you go. Ben Levin, thank you so much. Thanks, Dan. My pleasure. Ben Levin is a professor of law at the University of Colorado Law School who teaches and writes about criminal law and procedure. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once confided in the privacy of his therapist's office, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our postmaster general is Christian Tyler. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio. And please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, leave us a review. And please tell your friends about the show. They might like it. Then more people are listening to the show. And then we're one small step closer to fully automated luxury communism. 
Also, last but not least, before we get to that point of fully automated luxury communism, we need your support on patreon.com. Even a little bit helps a lot. Thank you.